0: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? All cultures care about their cuisine, but the Chinese must have one of the most food-obsessed cultures in the world. It might be because we have the best food. Those listeners of Chinese Whispers who've been to China will know exactly what I'm talking about. And for those of you who haven't, you may have come across the classic Chinese takeaway, dishes like sweet and sour pork, or you may like Cantonese dim sum, and some of you may be big fans of Chinese cooking as well. But China has so much more to offer than what has made it across into the West's Chinese restaurants. Thankfully, that's changing and quite fast. Part of the education campaign to bring more of the diversity and richness of Chinese cuisine to the West is the work of people like Fuchsia Dunlop. She trained a cook in Chengdu and is one of the most engaging and thoughtful writers on Chinese cuisine in the English language. I'm delighted to be joined by her on the podcast today to mark the publication of her new book, *Invitation to a Banquet*, which is all about the history, meaning, and diversity of Chinese cuisine. Fuchsia Dunlop, welcome to Chinese Whispers. I'm so delighted to have you here. Hello. Perhaps we can start with a bit of introduction to yourself for listeners who don't know you. You're not born in China and you don't have Chinese family. So how have you fallen so deeply into this rabbit hole of Chinese cuisine?
1: Well, I suppose that um, I, from very early on, I really loved eating and cooking from childhood. And China was really a coincidence. So I got mildly interested through an editorial job I had as a young woman in sort of in the 1990s. And I just went on a backpacking trip to China It was just so interesting. It was 1992, the country was just beginning to open up and it was a place I really didn't know anything about. But I, for some reason, I then started Mandarin evening classes (laughs) once a week and then went to do a summer school in Taipei and then started volunteering for a China magazine, China Now, Mm -hmm. Society of Anglo-Chinese Understanding was this sort of volunteer magazine. And then I got a British Council scholarship to go and live in China. I was supposed to be doing something very academic, but I arrived in Sichuan, the Sichuanese capital, Chengdu. And the food was just so wonderful and captivating, as was the place. So very quickly, I started doing what I've been doing since I was a teenager, which was writing notes about meals, uh, menus, you know, noting down what was in the market, just for fun, really. And gradually, I just got completely distracted from the university, stopped going to class and started asking local restaurateurs if I could go into their kitchens to learn. And they often said yes, because at that time, it was just... A rather incredible and funny idea that there was this foreign student who was interested you know and then I ended up going to do a sort of professional chefs foundation course at this
0: famous cooking school in Sichuan in Sichuan in Chengdu and I think you were the first foreigner to do that yes yes <sighs> Amazing. Um, And I have to say that your Sichuan cookbook has really allowed me to recreate some of my favourite Sichuan dishes at home. Because although I'm Chinese, I'm from Nanjing and it's a very different kind of culinary culture. I mean, I didn't really eat spicy foods growing up. And I guess that's part of the point of this new book, which is just to show the diversity and complexity of Chinese cuisine and to correct some Western misconceptions.
1: Yes, because I mean, I think the starting point for me really is that no other cuisine probably is as popular globally as Mm. Chinese until at least American fast food came along you know, for more than a century, there have been Chinese restaurants in all kinds of places and Chinese food has been, become part of people's lives. And yet it's never really been fully appreciated. Mm. Um, So for a lot of Westerners, it's still seen as being something that's middle brow or low brow, shouldn't be very expensive. That is, I mean, crazily enough, is often seen as unhealthy, mainly because the sort of the takeaway meal was all about deep fried food and, you know, salty sweet sauces and so on which as you all know is so unrepresentative of real Chinese cooking and just beyond that you know China is this huge country I mean it's more of a continent than a single country with such a vast diversity of different terrains and produce and sort of culinary cultures so you only see the tip of the iceberg from outside the country and I think really that um Food has become a very mainstream interest for a lot of people. Mm. We have cooking shows and books and restaurants. And yet Chinese food, I think, still doesn't have the status it deserves as arguably the world's most diverse, sophisticated, the grandest culinary culture. And sure, it has cheap street food, which can be very delicious, but it also has very labor-intensive, thoughtful, witty oat cuisine which in many ways kind of prefigures the trendy modernist cuisine of the west
0: yeah i mean that takeaway culture i think is what most westerners have access to most unless they go to china as you did in your book you very interestingly paint a picture of how that came about and how it deviated so much from the chinese food that is eaten in china can you tell us a little bit about that Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, the model really for
1: the takeaway culture in many places was really American Chinese food. So you had a lot of immigrants starting in the 19th century who almost all came from one region, the Cantonese south of China, and even from three particular counties, you know, agricultural area. And um, they went to America during the gold rush and they had to find work. And then there was a lot of prejudice against Chinese workers. They were seen as an economic threat. And in the late 19th century, you actually had sort of racially discriminatory legislation, the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which sort of stopped immigration and made it very difficult for people to work in many professions. So that's why so many Chinese immigrants went into the restaurant trade and the laundry business. And these were people for the main, who weren't professionally trained chefs, they didn't have sort of grand cultural, aspirations they were just trying to make a living in, in quite kind of hostile circumstances added to which they tended to open restaurants and takeaways takeouts in America in white areas where you know, they weren't apart from in San Francisco and places with like Chinatowns they were scattered and they didn't have access to all the ingredients they would have had at home mm. and so what they did was they invented this cuisine which was suited to the circumstances which was it inexpensive, very appealing, didn't include anything to sort of frighten sceptical westerners so you know no bones boneless proteins (laughs) yes i mean you know the sort of you know shrimps and boneless chicken and so on you know and these tasty childishly appealing sauces often supplemented i mean in britain by things like chips in curry sauce and roast chicken if people couldn't handle any kind of chinese food at all and in america you know you had the incredible popularity of chop suey Mm. which was a, a very basic sort of dish which became the emblem of one of the greatest cuisines in the world so clearly there's nothing wrong with american chinese or chinese takeaway food it's very popular it was very effective and um people love eating it but it's just it, it doesn't really represent anything like i mean either what most chinese people eat at home or
0: the, these these many different aspects and regional styles. Can you talk a little bit about those regional styles? Because I think it is hard, you know, we've both spent so much time in China and we know exactly what we're talking about. But let's say you've never been to China, you're listening to this podcast, the only access you've had is to um, pretty much mainstream Chinese takeaways. What do you mean when you say Chinese food is not oily or is not unhealthy or that there's regional differences? Can you give some examples of that?
1: Yeah, well, let's start with the unhealthy thing. I mean, I don't think there's any other culture probably in the history of the world that has been so insistent on the intimate link between diet and health as the Chinese. Mm. You know, food has been seen as medicine for more than 2,000 years. The earliest Chinese written recipes were actually prescriptions (laughs) for medicinal foods. And um, even today, in particularly people of the elder generation, you know, Chinese people talk all the time about balance, you know, what to eat to have a balanced diet, um, how you should adapt your diet to your own constitution, your symptoms, the weather, the season. Um, Food is seen as the absolute foundation of good health. And also a good Chinese meal... I, you know, if you think of a typical takeaway meal or a kind of old fashioned British Chinese restaurant meal, you'd have a lot of deep fried foods, mm. sweet and sour sauces. Probably on the side, you'd have chow mein or egg fried rice, probably no vegetables apart from a bit of pepper and bean sprout and onion in your chop sueys or your bao chicken or whatever. But um, a proper Chinese meal is designed to make you feel good not just your palate but to make you feel good afterwards so a typical Chinese meal if you have very strongly flavored or fried dishes or salty sweet dishes you'll have plain rice on the side or noodles you'll almost always have a very plainly cooked healthy seasonal vegetable like some blanched or stir-fried greens and a soup you know Mm. a light broth not these sort of very heavy sweet hot and sour soups which are so typical of the Chinese takeout thing but something that's very mild and refreshing so I think that of all the western stereotypes of Chinese food this idea that it's unhealthy is the most crazy because it's so completely
0: untrue. Yeah, and it just comes down to such simple differences sometimes. I mean, with the oiliness point, for example, you write you point out that actually if you have chopsticks and you're picking food from a dish into your own rice bowl, then the oil remains in the dish. But if you have it as part of your rice and you're using a fork to eat it, then you are shoveling all of that oil into your body. So it's different in how you're eating it. And so food isn't intended to be eaten as oily. You're not meant to spoon the cooking oil. (laughs) over your rice and actually eat
1: it and funnily enough a Sichuanese chef friend of mine she said to me once fuchsia you know westerners go on about how oily our food is but we've just been working with an american chef and he was putting like half a stick of butter into the mashed (laughs) potatoes and they were expected to eat it and the other thing is just about you know i just mentioned about how you compose a meal
0: Mm. like um is that ordering right
1: Ordering right, yes. I mean, if you have a dish which is, say, a deep fried bits of chicken in a sweet and sour sauce, if you eat that with egg fried rice, that's going to be quite rich. And um, it's designed to xiaofan, send the rice down, to be eaten with a bowl of plain steamed rice.
0: Yeah, I have I've seen a actor, a very famous actor in a local Sichuan restaurant here in Westminster. I won't name the names, but I saw what he ordered and I thought, God, that is totally wrong. And I was actually quite tempted to go up to him and say, that's not how you order it. Yeah. And I think also the, the fact is that, you know, and this is a
1: real cliche, but the, it's true in a lot of ways, which is Chinese eating tends to be very sociable. And um, what a bunch of Westerners do often when they go to a Chinese restaurant is everyone says, I fancy this dish. Mm-hmm. And even if you share it, everyone orders something that they fancy. But then you end up with a hopelessly lopsided menu. So the whole point of ordering a good Chinese meal is variety. You wouldn't have three chicken dishes on the table or everything deep fried or everything sweet and sour. So you need to have some kind of thought behind it. So maybe one person or a couple of people actually order a meal for the table, which all goes together. Mm. And regionally, then, how does that differ? Well, so regionally, I mean, the main thing about China is the incredible scale. So a Chinese province is kind of equivalent to a European country. And I always like to remember that when people talk about Chinese food, Chinese people also talk about Western food Mm -hmm. as if it was one thing you could make generalizations about. And we can see how ridiculous that is. But with Chinese food, so in the country in the north, you have Siberian forests, you have grasslands, deserts. In the west, you have Himalayan mountains, the Tibetan plateau. Um, you have tropical rainforests mm-hmm. in the, the southwest, in Yunnan, alluvial plains, all these different terrains and a huge coastline. So the produce in different parts of China is radically different. I mean, it's like the difference between Sicily and Norway. Mm. There is huge biodiversity, and coupled with this extraordinary and unlimited culinary curiosity, which is a whole other subject, but this has just created a very excitingly varied cuisine so in terms of how to understand it from the outside i mean there are different schemes so you know people in china talk about the four great cuisines or the eight great cuisines or the different provinces personally i think a really good starting point is the four great cuisines Mm -hmm. roughly north south east and west Mm -hmm. and so To an extent you can generalise about this. You can say in the north it's about wheat, it's about noodles and dumplings and bread as the staple foods, lamb or mutton is a very important meat, you get garlic and vinegar and quite hearty food and strong tastes. And then in the east, you have the Jiangnan region, Mm -hmm. which is a sort of center of Chinese gastronomy and food writing for centuries. It's been very wealthy for about sort of 800 years, the sort of center of the Chinese economy. And here you have sort of not lamb anymore, but pork and poultry, lots of freshwater fish and and other river creatures, they call them Hersien delicacies from, from the river, um, and also coastal fish. And the flavours tend to be milder and more delicate than in the north. So they have wonderful vinegars and soy sauce and dried seafood and the famous jinhua ham, which is about a bit like Spanish ham, which is used as a sort of flavouring and very sort of delicate cooking and nimble knife work and light flavours. Then in the west you have Sichuanese cuisine and you have bold spice, chili, Sichuan pepper, wonderful combinations of flavors, sweet and sour and nutty and salty and all kinds of things going on. And then in the south you have Cantonese cooking, mm-hmm. which is renowned for its freshness. So with having sort of you know a live fish prepared for table incredibly fresh shellfish delicate flavors wonderful soups and barbecued meats but anyway i think this gives you a real sense and and of course in all these three the sort of um east west and southern cuisines rice is the staple rather than
0: wheat so that's what you have with your dishes. Mm. Um, now, growing up, it always seemed to me that Chinese culture is particularly food oriented. As you point out in your book, it's a country where common greeting is, have you eaten yet? And it's become a trope of Asian parents that I've noticed in some films that they use cooking as a way of expressing love if they can't do it verbally. And you know, I may have personal experience of that as well. <laughs> but Fuchsia, you straddle British and Chinese cultures. Do you think it's fair to say that food is particularly integral to the Chinese identity and culture in a way that is not necessarily the case for other national identities. Absolutely. And
1: one of the themes of the first chapter of the book, actually, is that the Chinese really define themselves as people who cook. So in Chinese mythology, the discovery of fire Mm. and the transformation of raw food into delicious cooked food marked the beginning of human civilization. And that was the point at which people left behind the desolate era described as "rumao mao which means of um, drinking blood and eating feathers. And that's a metaphor for eating raw food and sort of scrabbling around and eating in a savage <laughs> way. So, you know, when people discovered how to cook, they became civilized and they became Chinese. So there is this conception that... You know, also in ancient China, the barbarians were people who ate raw food and Mm. the Chinese ate their food cooked. Also, food has been at the center of all the most important rituals, religious rituals, family rituals, state rituals, really since the beginning of Chinese civilization. In in the ancient dynasties, um, people made offerings of food and drink to their ancestors and to gods imploring them to bring good luck and good harvests. And, um, you know, you can go to any Chinese museum and it's all full of cooking pots. <laughs> you know, these bronze, they're called ding, these cauldrons. Incidentally, the ding is also in the name of the famous dumpling restaurant, Din Tai Fung. Ah, it's okay. ding, is that, oh. the abundant sort of cauldron. But, um, yeah, so it was richly important. It was also, as we've already said, the basis of good health. So how you eat... Create your physical state.
0: Speaking of museums, I was in Taipei this year and went to see the Jade Cabbage. Um, So this is one of um, Taipei National Palace Museum's most treasured exhibits, which is a Chinese cabbage carved out of white and green jade. And then there was also a stone of pork that looks like pork belly. And I was talking with my Taiwanese friends about how funny it was that for these most treasured items... In a cultural sense, they were both food items and, you know, we were just laughing about <laughs> how yes. bizarre that was. Yeah, and they're both also quite
1: humble food items. So the Chinese cabbage has been the sort of icon for, for hundreds of years in China. Cabbage
0: has a bad reputation in the English context, I think.
1: Yeah, well, I, mean, I think it's partly because our cabbages are quite clunky and hefty. And Chinese cabbage or, or brassica, you know, the whole family of brassica greens, there are so many very delicate varieties which are, they don't have that sulfurous undercurrent to their flavor and they're often cooked very lightly, sort of stir-fried or cooked mm. in soups or blanched. So I think that um, both the kinds of cabbage vegetables eaten in China are actually more immediately appealing um, and also they are cooked brilliantly. So, I mean, I, the, the sort of cliche of English school dinners, cabbage, you know, simply boiled, which you know, doesn't really make the most of this vegetable. Mm. Whereas in China, you might cook, um, you know, a Chinese cabbage, which is very delicate in a beautiful, rich stock, or you might cook it with vinegar to give it a sort of punchiness, a bit of chili, and um, all these light greens like pak choi and choy sum and these kind of vegetables are absolutely delicious stir fried with a bit of garlic maybe with some dried shrimps or mm-hmm. oyster sauce and they become i mean and they're, they're not, very hungry <laughs> yeah they're not just you know if you go to still if you go to a typical sort of british or, or even french restaurant you often get vegetables like a little side dish mm. with a like little bit of spinach yeah i mean it's very much secondary but in china if you order a green vegetable with your meal it'll be a decent portion And although it's not as prestigious as the the fish or something, it's an absolutely essential part of the whole architecture of the meal. So, I mean, one of the things I found when I lived in China was that I didn't eat vegetables out of duty. I just ate them because they were so delicious and they <laughs> made me enjoy the rest of the food more too because they were sort of a bit lighter than the rich dishes and they just leave you feeling good.
0: Mm. Do you think there's a point there about the diversity of ingredients there? Because it does feel like there's just many more varieties of vegetables, at least in China, than there are at least commonly accessible in a British supermarket. Is that just because of the Size of the country. I think partly it's the size of the country, you know, in all these
1: different regions with different specialities. And it's partly because people really care about mm. vegetables. So I wrote about in the book, a, a, I went to a banquet in Guangzhou and we had all these amazing dishes. And finally, there was this buzz around the table and everyone was really excited because someone had just flown in from northeastern China with some amazing ingredient that they were going to cook for us. And um, I was really curious, what could it be after the fabulous snake soup and steamed fish and whatever? And it turned out to be a cabbage, a Mm. Chinese cabbage (laughs) from a particular terroir in the northeast that was at that moment at the peak of its seasonal perfection. And everyone was really excited about that.
0: I mean, I don't think that would happen in this country. I'm glad you brought up snake soup, because that was something that I saw in Taiwan And um, this time around. It's not something that's traditional to my part of China. And I have to say, I did not want to eat it. It did look a bit adventurous for me. So, I mean, throughout all of this conversation, Fuchsia, and when we talk about the misconceptions that people have about Chinese cuisine, one reputation of it is that it's just incredibly nose to tail, that it's a bit scary for especially people who in the UK who like chicken breast or other boneless proteins. So Fisher isn't the fundamental point that you are just very adventurous and therefore you can take some of this, you're very open-minded about some of this stuff in a way that even some Chinese people might feel a bit iffy about? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, as you've just hinted, China
1: is very regional. And so people in different parts of China joke about each other and are appalled at local predilections in the same way that the English people used to scorn the French for eating frogs' legs and snails. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is true. And some of my Chinese friends, particularly northerners, are much more conservative than me in what they're willing to eat. But but I suppose that one of the things that really fascinates me is this enduring Western stereotype of the Chinese eating everything. Mm. Because... To a certain degree, it's true. Like The Chinese are very, very adventurous. They eat an extraordinary range of different ingredients and parts of ingredients, possibly more than any other culture. But Westerners have always cast this in a really negative light. So there's been this idea that the Chinese eat everything because... You know, it was a poverty cuisine mm. or because they were desperate or because they're weird it's all, always been very negative and i just have a completely different view of this so i think clearly i mean for a start it's worth saying that in any agrarian culture if people are going to kill an animal they tend to make the most of it and that was true in the west um, until very recently yeah. until recently it wasn't the case that everyone just ate chicken breast yeah mm-hmm. having said that the chinese do go further than this and they have a cucina povera like other cult- you know there, there are directories of famine foods that people could eat when times were hard you know wild plants and for sure poor chinese farmers will eat everything when they kill a pig but beyond that at the highest echelons of Chinese gastronomy you also have all these foods which strike westerners as being really unusual Mm -hmm. so deer tendons, birds nest soup, these are imperial delicacies and they are not desperate poverty food at all and I think that the real reason that the Chinese eat so many ingredients is because they are very free of food taboos Mm. there isn't a sort of caste system there's a few you know there are Chinese Muslims who don't eat pork and there are Buddhists who avoid meat but on the whole anything is fair game and um, there is, and this is another aspect that I find really fascinating this absolute joy in the tactile pleasures of eating, mm. in the textures of food. And that immediately. It's not just flavors,
0: texture, how it feels in your mouth.
1: Yeah, Kogan, literally, mm. mouthfeel. And so there are all kinds of ingredients which you, you wouldn't bother eating if yeah, you not Yeah, I often get
0: asked, why, what, what's the appeal in chicken feet, for example? And it's just, that, that's exactly it. There's texture of, yeah, of it. And, it, and it also, it tastes delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, but
1: you see, when you say tastes delicious, it's because taste, to a Chinese palate, it's not just flavor Mm. sweet sour whatever and the smells it's also about how the food feels it's it's a very tactile thing (laughs) and
0: so yeah so chickens feed jellyfish no flavour whatsoever when you prepared.
1: Silk and tofu. Silken yeah.
0: Well, tofu also. One of my favourites was just um, niangal rice cakes, which is a very hard thing to explain to your Western palate. Although now with the increased popularity of mochi, it's a bit easier to understand, but it is also using in savoury cooking as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and it's very sticky and that's hard for people to understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I think just in Western gastronomy, there's just... You know, people enjoy something that's crisp or something that's soft, but it's a much narrower range of textures. But with China it's sort of it's part of the adventure. Um, so there's that aspect which immediately makes other foods accessible but also there's a sort of playfulness and a pleasure in the thrill of serving unusual and unexpected things and exotica Mm. and there's a negative aspect to this which is of course shark's fins and you know wild creatures which one should stress is very much a minority thing only a sort of rich elite most chinese people don't eat these kind of you know, morally dubious ingredients because they can't afford to. And I should also point out that I think we're all in the same boat of eating unsustainably. So like mm. Western industrial fishing practices are just as destructive, really. So I think it's there's always been something a bit one-sided about the way the Chinese are singled out for environmentally destructive eating when look at eel, which is still served in fashionable European restaurants, Mm. and that's critically endangered, you know. But I think apart from that, there are also incredibly important aspects of Chinese omnivorousness, which could be a model for sustainable eating. So one of the dishes I write about in the book is braised pomelo pit, Mm -hmm. which is a really, you know, pomelo, this great citrus fruit with pith, a thick pith layer that's like cotton wool, I mean it's really unappealing in its raw state, I mean it's like well why would anyone cook it? Cantonese chefs do amazing things with potluck pith they soak it, they braise it in amazing stock and it becomes what is actually one of my favourite Cantonese dishes, Mm. so delicious and comforting. China has such a very developed sort of library of cooking techniques that you can apply to almost anything So you can take neglected ingredients like
0: pomelo pith or... You remind me of watermelon rind, actually, because if you stir fry that after the red flesh of the watermelon, you can get a very nice stir fry out of that as well.
1: Yes, yes, or you can pickle it, actually. Mm. Okay. Um, So it's very interesting how now in the West you have chefs and food companies trying to um, invent plant-based meats, and these kind of foods that are appealing to the yeah. palate and also trying to think of alternative sources of protein like insects, trying to be more creative about food. well, the Chinese have been doing this for more than a thousand years, mm-hmm. probably more than that, and so I just think that it's time to get rid of this negative stereotype of eating everything and actually look at how it can be inspirational. Mm in terms of creativity, resourcefulness, and even sustainability. Mm -hmm.
0: And I want to pick up a bit more on what you said about health and food, seeing food as medicine. In the West, we don't think about food as medicine, not generally, at least not in British culture. It does make sense now that I think about, you know, growing up, there's always adults around you saying, oh, you can't eat that, that will shanghuo, that will inflame you. And I didn't really understand what that meant growing up. But can you please just explain this notion of cooling and heating foods and how... Prevalent that is in Chinese society. Yes. Obviously, I didn't grow up with this, but I've had 30 years of
1: Chinese friends, as your parents did, advising me to stay away from this because it will shanghua, literally, you know, raise the fire or cause inflammation, and advising me to eat different things. And I think I've just sort of absorbed this learning over the last few decades. It's very unscientific and imprecise. It's like an art rather than a science it's quite subjective but I found that I've started using it in my own life and I wrote um, in the book about one incident when I had a terribly painful eye and I was sent by my GP to the emergency department of the eye hospital and um, after a lot of tests they told me I had systemic inflammation which was showing itself as an inflamed eyeball and they recommended that I would take all these drugs and possibly steroids if the immediate drugs didn't work. And just when I was actually in the hospital, I suddenly thought, well, you know, I had been burning the candle at both ends. I was exhausted. I'd been eating lots of rich food um, that in Chinese terms was guaranteed to shanghuo, raise the fire. Um, and I, so I'd been living rather unhealthily. And I just thought when the consultant is talking about inflammation is she talking about the same things as my Chinese friends are talking about when they say shang raise the fire? And I thought it sounds rather as if it might be. And if so, would it be possible that if I just changed my diet that I could actually get rid of this problem and so after talking to the doctor because I didn't want to do anything stupid because obviously it was my eye it's quite serious (laughs) and she said well if it gets any worse you have to take the drugs and if it's not getting better within 48 hours take the drugs but otherwise just what you want so I just went home via a Chinese supermarket and I got foods that were designed to be cooling so things like bitter melon to make a soup and chrysanthemum flowers to make tea and um, and these were just sort of things I just had an instinct for what my Chinese elder friends would advise and so I went home and I rested and I stopped eating cheese and chocolate and Mm -hmm. deep fried foods and I made Chinese soups and steamed things and bought things anyway within 24 hours I was getting better and I went back to the hospital a week later having taken no drugs in normal health and they were amazed so this is just a very subjective personal experience but as a practice it's not the only time i've done this and it
0: you know it seems to be a quite it's obviously very hard to say from a scientific perspective whether or not any of this really is reliable or effective but you know you make a good point in your book about how placebo sometimes is effective anyway in itself and also you know i can understand why diet would matter in your how your body feels really it's You know, one of the most important things about what you put in your body, just because you're eating it and it's not a drug doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect. And when you talk about chrysanthemum, I wondered if it was what hippies these days call like detoxing, you know, that kind of stuff. The notion of some foods being cleansing. Maybe it's a kind of similar idea of, obviously, it's hard to say how scientific any of this is, but it's similar ideas, I think.
1: I think it's similar ideas. But the thing that's really interesting about China is that it's a whole system. So it's not just about individual superfoods. Mm. So I think in the West you get, you know, suddenly all the magazines. (laughs) Yeah, talking about kale or goji berries. But in China it's all part of a general outlook. And um, I think it's very hard to prove because it's so general. But as a principle of addressing incipient symptoms with diet and preventative medicine rather than waiting till you're really ill... Mm and then taking drugs to suppress symptoms is quite an interesting principle.
0: And certainly it's prevalent as a belief amongst some Chinese people, especially the elder generation. So in that, it's quite interesting that this is what they live their life by in this kind of um, set of philosophies about their food. But
1: it's funny because I don't, like, I wouldn't say as a foreigner who's come to this, you know, adult life, it's not whether I believe in it or don't believe in it, but as a practice, it Mm. just seems
0: to be rather effective. Yeah. But it's interesting that younger people, you know, I include myself in this, we don't really know what's cooling or what's heating some of it is getting a bit lost, I think, in China's modernization. This is some of this traditional culture. And with the increasing popularity of Western medicine, and I think there's a, often a tendency in Chinese society of younger generations thinking, oh, that's just grandma's superstitions or whatever it is. And that's happening a lot as well. It's such that you probably know more about this stuff than, that, than I do, even though <laughs> I was steeped in it growing up. But I think so. that brings me to my next question in the future, which is just how much modernity changes things. Because... China's modern history has changed so much of Chinese culture, you know, the 20th century history. Did it affect food as well? Because presumably restaurant culture wasn't really a thing under Maoism. And how does that feature in the type of food that Chinese people eat inside the country?
1: Well, I mean, I think a cuisine is always a living form of culture that is recreated every day in kitchens everywhere with what's available in the conditions that are around at the time and so in china exactly as you say the the whole idea of these four regional cuisines is very recent mm. i mean it wasn't really articulated until sort of decades ago really and if you think of Sichuanese cuisine so famous for its spicy cooking the chili's only been there for a couple of hundred years so i think On the one hand, Chinese cuisine has some astonishing continuities, like the use of fermented soybeans, Mm. like in your modern black bean sauce going back more than 2000 years. But it's also always been dynamic and evolving. So I've mentioned in the book in a few places, during the Han Dynasty, about 2,000 years ago, there were all these newfangled ingredients coming in, like black pepper, mm. which was known as hujiao, barbarian pepper, because it was from outside rather than the old Sichuan pepper. You know, that period, um, flour milling technology, which led to the making of noodles, also came in from West Asia. And there have been all these new ingredients and ideas and cooking techniques coming in. So I think that one should never be too conservative about a cuisine. Mm. But at the same time, I think having been watching Chinese food culture for the last 30 years, there are some things that make me rather sad, which is that Chinese people have this very thoughtful and healthy and... Interesting and delicious food culture. And there is a sense now that young people are not learning from their parents how to cook. Mm. That I've met so many artisans who are making traditional foods who have no apprentices. And so I think we're facing a big loss of skills in the same way that we did in this country. probably before and after the Second World War. So it's happening in China right now at the very moment when we're sort of seeing the value of of all these things. So I do feel nostalgic, and when I give talks in China, I'm always saying to young people, it's just, you have this amazing
0: food culture, you know, learn from your parents and grandparents, please
1: carry it on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if that is a culture that is being lost in the consumer perspective as well. One thing from your book is, you know, you talk about how much vegetables feature and they're very important in their own right, um, how it's not often a very meat-based diet, but actually, you know... In modern China's banquet culture, you know, this idea of business people or, or politicians or just your ordinary people going out to impress friends and family and business partners, you'll have this massive table of dozens of dishes, and often lots of them will be very rich, very kind of show-offy dishes. Not your plain kind of, you're not your so much your cabbage and your green beans and that kind of stuff. And then this idea of going away from a dinner table feeling comfortable, I think there is a lot of gluttony as it were in Chinese food culture now when it comes to the consumer perspective and wastage is something that the government has talked about recently with this empty plates campaign. So I just wonder if you notice that too that Chinese consumers have kind of pushed the boat beyond this kind of lovely balanced viewpoint as well. Totally. But I think it's a very understandable
1: reaction because, I mean, there was still rationing in China in the early 1990s. Mm. Um, most people of the elder generation remember a time very recently when they didn't have enough meat. They craved meat all the time, they didn't have enough food. And so I think from the 90s, when I was first in China, for a couple of decades, there's been this joyful reaction against deprivation, which has tipped over into terrible waste, the banquet table groaning with food, most of which is not eaten. So I think, on the one hand, this is understandable. And I I see it as part of a historical phase. Mm -hmm. And it's really noticeable now that more refined people, more cultured people are becoming more restrained in the way they eat and talking more about what we would think of as organic foods Mm. and you know going back to some of these values i've also noticed that there's been more conversation about avoiding wastes and people seem to be more likely to 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 take food home in a sort of box or a doggy bag so i think i'm hopeful that the idea that eating well is about something that's a bit more restrained and less extravagant will become more popular. And yeah. um, then on the other hand, another reaction is that now with younger people, mm. I think it's partly that Chinese parents don't necessarily want to teach their children that there's so much pressure on children to study in china so i have friends whose children and grandchildren are not learning to cook because they're just forced to study all the time yeah and so many of the chinese students who come to this country like they've never cooked and they're having to learn from scratch Mm -hmm. um and simultaneously there's been a huge growth in packaged foods junk foods takeaway so the takeaway culture in China is far in advance of what it is in this country. Yeah. And you can get, to be fair, when I was last in China earlier this year, I was ill in my hotel and I got takeaways for a few days. And I did get some marvellously healthy, like sort of tonic chicken soup and, you know, brown rice. <laughs> Probably no one was broccoli. ordering that. <laughs> yeah, you, you can get everything. But I think there's a fashion for very spicy, very oily, very kind of sexy food mm-hmm. that's not terribly balanced and healthy. Yeah. But the picture is all very
0: complicated as it is everywhere. Yeah. And what about the ecology of things as well? You've talked about the importance of ingredients, but to me it sounds like with China's fast urbanisation, which has slowed down in recent years and got better in conservation in other areas, but it does seem to me that some ingredients themselves would be under threat from uh, ecologies going out of existence.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think rapid urbanization has swallowed up a lot of farmland in Chengdu for example this particular chili which is used to make the doubanjiang the chili bean paste in PCN near Chengdu It's it's a variety of chili called Arjing Tiao, and it was grown in an area on the outskirts of Chengdu called Mumashan, which has now been completely developed. All the chili fields have been turned into villas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there is a loss of agricultural land. There are also terrible problems of pollution as a result of rapid industrialization. And so chefs I know are very preoccupied with the search for fine ingredients, Mm -hmm. and they say it's very difficult to find the best You know, sources of food that you can really rely on, but I think on the one hand, the acute environmental crisis is felt very much in China, and the Chinese are in some ways being more proactive than we are in the West with cleaning up industry. Like to just to take a small example, long-life light bulbs Mm -hmm. were everywhere in every Chinese farmhouse long before they became normal in the West. There are many wind farms. So I think that there are moves to address the environmental crisis with the urgency it deserves, which one can hope will go somewhere. And I also think that in China, whatever the current problems, you have very deep-rooted Culinary culture Mm. that has been obsessed with terroir, with seasons, with the quality of ingredients for 2000 years. And I think this is something that is just there to be revived. And it is being revived by people in the cities. Mm -hmm. And for example, the Dragonwell Manor restaurant and the owner, Dai Jianjun, who has been a big influence on me, and you'll hear about him in the book. But he's doing very interesting things, linking up with farmers in less developed areas with very clean environments to try and help them market their so-called green food products at a premium to urban consumers and therefore have an incentive to farm in a clean, ecological way. So,
0: so there is a movement, a civil movement. Yeah. yeah. And I just I mean, I hope that these things will grow. And on the other side of that is government-led campaigns. So, you know, we just talked about the Empty Plates campaign. And um, there's also a campaign to move people to eating potatoes away from rice as a staple. That's been going on for, oh gosh, almost a decade now, if not longer. How's, it doesn't seem like that's going quite well either. I mean, Fuchsia, what do you think about that? Can Chinese people be weaned off rice into potatoes as a staple? <laughs> well, it's a big art. <laughs> because uh,
1: Ch- potatoes are used as a peripheral vegetable in Chinese cooking. But as far as most people are concerned, the, you would only eat them as a staple food if you were a desperate, starving peasant. And um, I wrote about one taxi driver in Hangzhou. And when I explained to him that English people really loved eating potatoes as a staple food, he said, na, which means good heavens. You know, He looked <laughs> rather horrified. But yes, there is a big push to get people to eat potatoes. And I actually went to a... And that's because it's cheaper, isn't it? It's it's more sustainable to grow. Yeah, I think less thirsty crop and also just an alternative source of of carbohydrates. But I spent some time in Shanxi province in the north, which is famous for its noodles. Mm. And I was in the capital, Taiyuan, and I went to a restaurant specialising in local noodle foods. And the boss of the restaurant was developing a a potato banquet, okay. <laughs> which was trying to be creative with potatoes. And he actually had produced these glossy packs of cards and every card had a different recipe for a different <laughs> potato dish. But anyway, I wish him luck. But I, <laughs> I don't think... I mean, it was a great novelty, but I don't know, I can't... Although having said that, lots of small children really love eating
0: chips Chips. french fries (laughs) so maybe american fast food is is getting more popular but um, although the american fast food in china is also Sinicized in a way that chinese takeaway in here in the west is made westernized i mean in mcdonald's you can get all sorts of chinese flavors on your fried chicken Um, and fuchsia thank you so much for your time today but i couldn't possibly let you go without asking about some of your favorite dishes like what do you think has been not appreciated here in the west or hasn't quite made its way through to the Western access to Chinese food. What would you recommend? Well, there's an infinite possibility of answers <laughs> to that. Okay, give me, give me your top three.
1: <laughs> well, I think stir-fried greens, fresh seasonal greens, beautifully cooked mm-hmm. and tender little greens, not overgrown ones, plastic, you know, wrapped in plastic like we get in supermarkets here. That for me is a joyful. Chinese dish, bamboo shoots. Bamboo shoots are so nice. Yeah, and when you have tinned bamboo shoots, it's just a bit of crunch, but it gives you no idea about... I mean, the smell when a bamboo shoot soup is boiling is Mm. so savoury and delicious, and they're so delicate and crisp and lovely, and and you can only eat them when they're very fresh. And so bamboo shoots, if anyone is sceptical about... Chinese cuisine, I'd love to cook them some delicious dishes with bamboo shoots. <laughs> yeah, then and then you get one more. <laughs> or maybe that pomelo pith dish, mm-hmm. because I think it's such a demonstration of the imagination and creativity of Chinese cooking. And it has this very comforting, almost mashed potato texture but a very savoury flavour from a stalk made of chicken and pork and dried fish and other delicious things. And it'll have a sprinkling of dried shrimp eggs over the top and it's just... So unexpected. Okay,
0: well, I'm starving, and I'm sure people who are listening are too. So, Fuchsia, finally, what restaurants would you recommend, assuming most of our listeners are from the UK? Maybe London will be the capital of Chinese food in the UK, do you think? I mean, what restaurants would you recommend for people who want to try some of this much more diverse, complicated Chinese food than your usual takeaway?
1: Well, the two places that I go to most are Royal China Club for dim sum. Okay. And I think Cantonese dim sum is something that, I mean, you can get remarkably good quality and authentic dim sum in London, and that restaurant is one of my favourites. So all these... Delicate, translucent little dumplings filled with a mix of seafood and meat and little crunchy bits of water, (laughs) chestnut and mushroom and so on. Um, And that's just a, a wonderful way. And also you can try many, because the dumplings are very small, you can just try lots of different things and it's very exciting. And the other place I go all the time is Master Whey. Near Hoban, and it's run by a, a young female chef that I know. We used to work together at the Sichuanese restaurant, Shu, And um, she's from Xi'an in northern China, which is known for its noodles and dumplings and exciting street foods. And this is a very inexpensive place, but there are handmade biang biang noodles with a sort of sizzle of chili and garlic oil on top. Completely <laughs> delicious. And the so-called Xi'an hamburger, Jiamo, which is like a flatbread stuffed with pork, or I think she also does like cumin, beef or lamb and potsticker dumplings and some delicious cold dishes like slippery wood ear mushroom salad and cold chicken and a spicy sauce. But those two places, they give you a sense of one region at the far south, mm-hmm. the Cantonese south and one in the north of rice country and wheat country
0: and very beautiful, authentic Chinese food in London. I don't know how you do your job, Fisher. You must be hungry all of the time thinking about these
1: days. <laughs> I have to say, when I was writing this book, I was flicking through my <laughs> library of photographs and my notebooks of sort of years and years of eating in China and driving myself completely crazy. <laughs> Fisher Dunlop,
0: thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there.